0: As you turn to Galatians chapter 1 in your Bibles, I want you to think about when you first came to God or when God called and you answered. Um, let me get to Galatians, page 1396. When were you called? What was happening What were the circumstances? Was it in a church service? Did somebody preach a sermon, make an invitation, and the emotions were overwhelming, and you felt that gentle nudge to come just as you are? (laughs) Uh, When the pastor maybe opened up the altar, invited people to bow their heads and lift up their hands, you know, and do secret evangelism. Nobody's watching. Um, Were many incidents and occasions leading up? two or honing you in on until a climactic moment happened with the Lord when the Lord called you I've been talking about our friend John Pitts and he he was a heavy drinker and he would I remember he would tell me a few things happened he was transferring positions at his job and that transfer demanded a physical and at the physical he was told that with his drinking and the liver the way it was he had about five years left to live. So that prospect was frightening enough to just cause him to stop drinking altogether. And he also began to watch some evangelists on TV. And then coinciding, he talked about one trip to the department store, and John always claims he heard a voice behind him say as he passed a rack, well, I think I'll buy a Bible. (laughs) So he did. Started reading. Eventually one night he gave his sins to Jesus, and he just looked up in his local phone book, Local Churches, one church that met at a time that was convenient for him and his job, and so he started going to church. Now, for me, I grew up in the church, and there would be what I would call milestone occasions where I felt like my life with Jesus was progressing. Well, i a young age. I can't even remember when, when I asked Jesus into my heart with the help and prayer of my mother. But there was a family church camp around 10 years of age. Where I went forward and I committed to a little bit more of a sobering and serious practicing of my faith. And then I remember the age of 17 or so when I walked into my pastor's office telling him that I was feeling called to be a pastor. So what about you? And Paul today in Galatians and as he did earlier as was read in Acts. Is going to go into his own personal testimony. But he wants to reveal one thing primarily about the gospel that he preaches and defends. It is God-sourced and not man-sourced. So I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of the Lord this morning. We're going to begin by covering verses 6-11 through in Galatians 1, though I intend to finish out the chapter this morning. Paul says, I am amazed how quickly you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be under a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be under a curse. Am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I certify to you, brothers, that the gospel I preached was not devised by man. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our study in the book of Galatians, it's going to be easy to hear and feel themes that were similar to last week's message, but we know this is all one book, and we pray that whatever you were putting into Paul's mind to hammer on to the Galatians, you would hammer on in our hearts, that we would be receptive, obedient, that we would feel the weight and gravity of Paul's urgency, that we would rely on Nothing else, because as we just sang, Jesus paid it all. Father, thank you for paying for our sins at the cross. Thank you for dying and resurrecting again. We ask that you would now open up our hearts and ears to hear you, that you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. And we ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. People who practice what many people call Jesus plus always take pride in ownership, right? You think you have the gospel, but you're part of the world. Whereas I, I know things you don't. I've heard things. I've been turned on to things. I've been made privy to things that you aren't privy to. Well, aren't you something special? Paul's first point today is that it's only Christ's gospel. It's only Christ's. I love what the author of Hebrews says, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And to head away from the simple truth of Christ's taking on our sins and dying for them on the cross and resurrecting, proving that He is God and He is to be trusted, is to head away from this truth and is to desert God. That's Paul's striking charge. Now, I know I spent a whole Sunday unpacking what are the first salutations and greetings of Paul, but... As you read these, this book, it, it makes me think of those scenes in movies, or maybe you've experienced them in life, where one person comes to another, and they're just quick to get all the pleasantries out of the way. Right? How are you? How how are the kids? Boy, this weather. Okay, listen, jerk. <laughs> That's kind of where Paul is with here. It's, it's the, the the feeling I get. He he got he has the salutations and greetings out of the way. But then he pulls back his sleeves and he gets his pointing finger out and he says, I am amazed. Other translations will say that he's astonished. He's shocked. He marvels at how quickly you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. This is a high charge. These people, says Paul, are God-deserters. God-deserters. The the gospel that saves you, the gospel that had the power to, to call you out of darkness and into light, the gospel that said, I am a sinner, I cannot save myself, I am convicted by God's law, I need a Savior, and His name is Jesus. That is a good gospel. It doesn't need anything else. It doesn't need to be added to. It is enough for salvation, and it is enough for sanctification. It's enough to save you and declare you righteous, to justify you, to say to God the judge, this man or this woman is saved. It's acquitted on account of the blood of Jesus. And the gospel is so profound to sanctify us. I can always tell you from personal experience, and I'm sure many of you could say it better than me, but... The gospel of grace is always humbling. It is always humbling. To be a pastor, to study every week, to prepare and give a message, but then to come to this place of such a a rotten sinner, God, is your grace still sufficient? It is. And it's always humbling. These Galatians are deserting the God who calls all people by grace. Do you get that? You know that there's a, a kindness that it is a kindness of God to call you. It, it's not a right. It's a kindness. It's a privilege. It's not earned. There is nobody on planet Earth where God has ever said, "Once I need that person on my team." <laughs> that that's a swell person. I got to have them on my team. That's never happened. Paul says to the Athenians that God isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Like, do we get that? God is not sweating beads over anyone helping him out. You and I cannot let God down because he doesn't rely on us anyways. God wasn't stewing this whole last week. I'm depending on you, Kevin. Get that message written. (laughs) Don't let this fail on account of you like... God gave me breath for seven days this past week, and in His grace and kindness, He likely mitigated around my bad exercise and eating habits and put up with my shenanigans and says, if you're listening, I'll use you this week. <laughs> We're saved by grace. We're saved by His kindness. There's nobody on planet Earth that God made go, Wow, wee! where have I been? Look at that guy. I need him. Paul echoes the psalmists in Romans 3. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That's why it is so frustrating and so off-putting that people have the audacity to come alongside other Christians and basically say, I've graduated. Right? You just got the Bible in your old style run-of-the-mill Christianity, but I got something better. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm calling garbage on that. That's garbage. And Paul says, you are deserting God. Which is, I think, quite the opposite of what these people are trying to accomplish. They're turning to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. Evidently, some people are troubling you and trying to distort the gospel of Christ. Did you know that religion, in the derogatory sense, the Bible uses religion actually in a good way if you look in James, but religion in the sense that these people think good things equals brownie points, bad things equal God's going to just, you know, fry me in hell. This sort of religion never leads to Christ. It leads to pride, which is highly offensive to God, or it leads to despair. And Christianity, contrary to popular belief, is not supposed to be a religion of self-pity and self-despair. Now, some of you say, and you say that after you just dumped on us about how bad and evil people are from Romans 3. But that's supposed to make the gospel sweeter. See, God doesn't need anybody, but he wants everybody. Everybody. Paul would write Timothy that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You and I are wanted out of His kindness, not out of our performance. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that liberating? See, the religious types would say, follow Jesus plus these rules, and they have the weight of performance lying over them. Well, that's always helpful, right? Well, I don't get it all right. I'm not accepted. Friends, not knowing all of you, not knowing what you did this past week, not having an account of all your actions. I know this, though. In Christ, you are accepted in God's family today. Because your past and your doings aren't relevant. What's relevant as far as God is concerned is what do you say about Christ? What do you believe in about Christ? Where do you put your faith, hope, and trust in? It's Christ. Don't let anybody trouble or distort the gospel for you. Paul would say that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Now, some might be a little bit uncomfortable, and this is an objection that Paul will actually handle in this book and had to handle in all of his teaching of Christ's gospel, but this is not a license to sin, right? Well, Kevin, you just gave me the verse and you've been saying God doesn't need me to do anything. All I need to do is confess and believe. But your beliefs, if they are genuine beliefs, correlate to action, do they not? I can tell you this. I don't mean to offend anyone if this is part of your thinking. But I know a lot of people up here think it's the end of the world. And I know this more by their actions. Sure, you talk to a few of them and you can tell it by their words, but also by their actions. Stocking up, saving, hunkering down. Hmm, They believe something about the world right now. Your beliefs, if they're true beliefs in a God who would become flesh to die for your sins and would rise again... (laughs) and would call you into discipleship, if you say about that God, He is my Savior and He is my Lord, that will correlate to actions. It should. If it doesn't, you either lied or you don't understand the ramifications. I love my wife Christy. That correlates to action every day. I love my kids. That correlates into action every day. These people troubling the Galatians... Paul would reveal later on a bit colorfully in Galatians 5.12, As for those who are agitating you, I wish they would proceed to emasculate themselves. Because they're saying you need to get circumcised. <laughs> Paul's a bit fired up about this issue. It's this Jesus plus thing. And the plus thing that the false teachers were, were bringing to the Galatians really was, Be more Jewish before you're truly Christian. Get circumcised. And this would likely extend into keeping feast days, keeping Sabbaths, keeping dietary issues. And this is offensive and it robs from the gospel because it means that what Jesus did was not enough. That God becoming flesh, dying for our sins wasn't enough, well, to cleanse us from our sins. Now teachers have sneaky ways. Well, if you're freed from sins and the propensity to sin, then we're finally free to live the law as we should. We have the ability to. Well, why bind ourselves to the law's manifestation of righteousness when Jesus has invited us to bind ourselves to God's manifestation of righteousness in Him? Read Romans 3, 21-26 when you have a chance. But it's also... Just because I know people don't like Paul, I'll just take it straight from the mouth of Jesus. John 15, verses 3 through 4, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Then he says, Remain in me. doesn't say remain in the law. Remain in me and I will remain in you, just as no branch can bear fruit By itself, unless it remains in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. That means you can't bear fruit if you're remaining in the law. Don't desert him. Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be under a curse. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be under a curse. There is only one gospel. Do you see where Paul's stake is in all of this? He says, even if we should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached, Paul's not worried about his own reputation. He says, I might have the propensity to slide back into some foolish doctrines. If I come to you and say something else than I said before, forget me. He's worried about the truth remaining in his hearers. Because the gospel is not about Paul. It's not about what you know and, wow, let me sit at your feet. No, the gospel is simple and it shouldn't be changed, altered, added to, spruced up, or watered down. Paul's got nothing to lose in the matter. He says, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I certify to you, brothers, that the gospel I preached was not devised by man. It reminded me of what Paul said to actually the Corinthians. He says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. That was the end of verse 21. Verse 22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The gospel is foolish. That's probably why it's God's power that saves people through it. Because I get the foolishness part. What does a 2,000-year-old Jewish man dying on a cross mean to me? How does that save me? What does the first century Jewish Messiah in the Middle East somewhere have to do with some Westerner in the 21st century? Jews demand signs and power and prestige. They want the risen empire of Israel. Greeks seek wisdom and understanding. They want things that are logical and make sense and powerful. But all we get is the crucifixion of a Messiah. Of course, that dead Messiah saves me because he's not dead anymore. He's alive. And Paul shirks any ownership. He's basically saying, I wouldn't have written it this way. (laughs) I wouldn't have this message, but it's the truth and that's why I preach it. It's not devised by man. Take it, leave it, love it, hate it. Everyone needs to deal with what they're going to do about the truth. Paul's going to move into the reality of his having a personal encounter with God to reveal that he didn't come up with this gospel. He says, I did not receive it, Paul says the gospel, from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And this is important because the the Galatians were being tricked into a false gospel, a non-gospel, Paul actually alluded to in verse 7, by agitators coming to them. Outside sources, extra-biblical sources, Paul is saying on the contrary, I received what I preached from Jesus Christ Himself. That's kind of a trump card. (laughs) Now, some might say, well, I read the Old Testament and it says, but the point is, Paul is saying, well, I talked to the author of the Old Testament and he said, (laughs) right? It's Christ's gospel. Don't rob it from Him. Then, like my friend John Pitts, who seemed an unlikely convert before he was converted, Paul's going to talk about his unlikelihood of wanting to fabricate the gospel that he preaches and apparently offends so much with with this talk of free and unmerited grace that Jesus just loves people and that's why he saves people instead of we just not having the ability to wow him into saving us. He says in verse 13, he says, "...for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism." How severely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. If anyone had reason to prefer legalism and had a keen understanding of the old covenant law and keeping equals salvation, law keeping equals salvation, it was Paul. He hated Christ. He was probably holier and better than all the Judaizing teachers of the Galatians put together. He was so far into the tradition of Judaism that he was willing to go to war so that it might prove itself better than anything that threatened it. But then, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son and me. And we need a. Pulled over here for a brief side trail for a minute. So let's look at those words. When God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me. Some people called Calvinists like to point me to this passage and say and if you don't want, know what Calvinism is I'll, I'll remind you in a minute but they'll say you see God set apart Paul from his mother's womb God called him by his grace And Calvinists believe in a definition of predestination, and I want to say that because the word predestined and predestination is in the Bible, but what we're arguing about is the definitions of these words. But they believe in a definition of predestination that basically God plays duck, duck, damn, right? That's That's a crass characterization of it, but... It's a fast way to communicate what they're really saying. Some are chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. Others are chosen before the foundation of the world to be damned. Lucky Paul, he was set apart in the womb and chosen by God's grace. But what was Paul chosen by God's grace for? Good thing that Paul answers this. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about his mission to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to preach salvation. He's not necessarily talking about God selecting him to be saved, period. Now, maybe you picked up on this already. Some might say, well, does God setting him aside in the womb and choosing him for ministry to the Gentiles, Gentiles, wouldn't that entail that also God chose him to be saved in the first place so that he might do that? And I'm just not convinced that Paul or the Holy Spirit intended for us to take Paul's claims about how he came about his Gentile ministry of the gospel also as a foundation of how God saves every single person. Uh, to, to hone in on Paul's conversion, which is a very significant conversion well attested to in the New Testament, probably the biggest conversion in the New Testament, And then say that this is the formula or the blueprint or the way of salvation, period. Well, let's ask, how was Peter saved or when was Peter saved? Was it Luke chapter 5 when Jesus did the miracle of the fish and Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Was it Matthew 16 when Peter said to Jesus, I believe you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed him that God himself had given Peter this truth. Was it in John 21 when Jesus essentially forgave Peter for his denial and told him to feed his lambs? Some believers feel that a Holy Spirit's witness is completely necessary to say that you're saved. So was it in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on Peter? My point is, back in Galatians, in the context, Paul is talking about his divine commission from God to be a voice of the Gentiles and... He's using language that sounds strikingly similar to the prophets of old, like Jeremiah. And if you look at what Jeremiah states, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And if we look there, we can state about that if you want to argue Calvinism. Versus Arminianism, which is the other side. That is, uh, Arminianism looks to God's foreknowledge as a means of predestination. In other words, he says, I know what Kevin will say if he's given the offer. That's predestination. Look at what um, Jeremiah said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Sounds a lot like how Paul would describe predestination in Romans 8.29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. But let's not get off track because my point in Galatians is that I don't believe Paul is concerning himself with the intricacies of God's sovereignty and salvation in Galatians. He's more interested in his calling, his apostleship. And he's using language like that of how Jeremiah was called to say, I was called, I was set apart the same way. And about a guy whose books fill up the New Testament and whose biography, aside from Jesus, occupies a lot of the New Testament, I say that I can believe what Paul's saying. I believe that God had a special calling and purpose for Paul. And I can say, thank God that Paul was yielded to the Holy Spirit. Paul was obedient by God's grace. Some might Calvinists might argue, are you saying that though God set Paul aside for all this stuff, Paul could have shirked his ordained ministry for him? And I'm saying God knew that Paul wouldn't. (laughs) A redeemed man like Paul yielded to God's grace would fulfill the calling laid on It's probably why God chose Paul for such things. And that's why God revealed his son in me, says Paul, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not rush to consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to the apostles who came before me. But I went into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Now, because it's fun and we like to come up with chronologies, what people like to do is turn over to Acts 9 and then they compare Luke's telling with Paul's personal telling. And there's a question of, where in Luke's telling would have Paul gone to Arabia? And where in Luke's telling would Paul's three years pass? Verse 18 in our, in, of our text. I looked at both passages. I spent a lot of time in Galatians 1 and Acts 9 and I molded over. I could probably even lay some theories out for you, but I'll let you do that on your own time. Because it's interesting and fun. I didn't find anything necessary to preach about it. <laughs> the point that Paul is making is that the gospel he preaches is handed to him from God on the road to Damascus. In fact, it is purposed for him while he's in the womb, as he had stated from God. And after his conversion, though he likely did immediately start preaching in Damascus, Paul is stating that he went to Arabia, and it wasn't until three years, plus his time in Arabia... That he met with some of the disciples. In other words, he had time to work out his calling and ministry and theology with God and from God alone. Maybe it's hard for us to fathom in our culture and day because if I'm honest, this would be my own impression upon new converts. Get involved in a church. <laughs> Start seeing people. Get discipled. And here's Paul saying, I got saved and then I got some time away to figure out my salvation. To figure out my calling. But Paul's not saying that because he believes in being a lone wolf or being an island in Christianity, but he's making his point. God met him. God spoke to him. God took the the Christian hater that he was and made him a Christ follower and missionary. And So it's not like Paul retreated with some Christians who did a good job of converting him and made him a deal to change teams, right? No, Paul received a pure, unadulterated gospel from God himself. But there is this balance. Some of you, maybe you grew up in a faith tradition that was charismatic and Pentecostal, and you hear, God told me, and unlike me, you're willing to be a little bit more open and attentive than like I am. <laughs> I grew up in a tradition where the one time that actually happened in the church I grew up at, when somebody got set, got up and said in a very serious and sobering, and you know, I mean it sort of way, and started pointing out people and saying, and you, you're going to do this. And then prophesy. I was a little skeptical. <laughs> I was a little, is this really happening? And is this okay? <laughs> like, how do you know? When did God have a direct phone line with you? Like, And so likewise, Paul is building this case that, that God directly called him into ministry with a God-sourced gospel. But then Paul makes sure to not think too far in the wrong direction. That it's just he and God. Rather, he writes in verse 18, he says, "...only after three years did I go up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas." That's the Aramaic term for rock, the Greek term being Peter, a nickname for the apostle Simon. "...and I stayed with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie." In the next chapter, Paul is going to call these two men, Peter and James, along with John, as reputed to be pillars. Now, just as Paul wants to make clear that he's received a pure gospel from God, so he wants to make clear that upon meeting with leaders in the church, he's showing that he's in alignment with them. He's not butting heads as far as theology goes. In fact, we'll see in chapter 2 that he's going to correct Peter with his own gospel. Later I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. this is Paul's home region. He is from Tarsus, that region up there and this is the Syria area. Jerusalem's down here behind a bunch of trees <laughs> 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 and uh, but he it was actually in Tarsus where Barnabas found him. Barnabas came up from Jerusalem. he went to Antioch. he sees that Antioch. He is growing as a church and he decides, I need Paul on my side over here to minister in Antioch. And so he goes to Tarsus and he brings him back. But when Paul was in this region before Barnabas got him, likely ministering, Paul says, I was personally unknown, however, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the account. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. Now, I wrap this message up in a way that I didn't expect personally because it's something I don't like to do. I go to another I'm going to go to another text to make my closing point. But that's because this is a very powerful gospel. Do we ever stop and think about Saul and Paul? And do you believe in the power of this gospel? You know, I was talking a while ago with Christy and that for me, sometimes I've been painfully optimistic. Sometimes I wonder if if I've even been naively optimistic. There have been occasions of late to where my optimism has subsided a bit, and here's what I mean. First of all, I believe in redemption, right? Uh, And we say words like redemption all the time, but I believe in what it means. I believe that people who have Horrible problems and maybe have had horrible trajectories in their lives and maybe have made bad decision after bad decision. And they find themselves in jacked up situations due to bad relationships, bad decisions, external problems maybe they didn't cause. I believe that redemption can take place. <laughs> I believe that that God, as He made a Christian hating persecutor literally on the road to do more harm to His people, a zealous, bold, unbending missionary, that God can do that to anybody. And He can make people who were born from a young age paralyzed walk again. He can make blind beggars see. He can make poor fishermen fishers of men. He can make denying, comfort-loving traitors into pillars of the church. So why can't He take you where you are at and make a good come from it? Why can't he make maybe disinterested or half-hearted, self-professing Christians and make them on fire sold out once? Why can't he? I believe in redemption. But there have been occasions of late, as I said, I was talking with Christy, where if I'm honest, it makes me wonder. I said to myself, was I just young, naive, idealistic? You and I know those people we pray for for so long and... Oh, look, they're calling on my phone, and we get off the phone, and it seems like they're going the opposite direction, the opposite way. Will they ever change? There have been those people where only five to seven years ago I said to myself, maybe I even said to them, you know, in so many years, here's where I imagine you and your situation by God's grace. Here's a, he's a redeemer. But here we are five to seven years later, and they've blown their lives to smithereens. The situation's gotten worse. It's ended in a very bad spot, and it, it seems like they can't go back, and, and things cannot change. And it's made me see things a little bit more sadly, right? Like, now this isn't a work in progress. Now it just seems it's condemned, closed, beyond repair. Just blow it up. And I just feel led to look at this idea with you as we close, because maybe we've heard enough about Paul, and maybe we've heard, wow, Here is an ISIS member, an Osama bin Laden, a Christ-hating, Christian-killing zealot, if we've ever heard of one. And suddenly the news comes out that the gospel has gotten a hold of him, and he's proclaiming Christ to everyone, and they glorified God, Paul said. But I wonder if, like me, maybe you've believed, past tense, in redemption. But reading stories in the Bible about it doesn't strengthen your faith anymore. They, they make you somewhat sad because you you desperately want to see it. You're in a church and you and other believers are praying for it as far as your situation goes. But nothing's happening. You know, there was a kid. Mute. Foaming at the mouth. Gnashes his teeth. Sometimes would get stiff as a board. Unvoluntarily would be thrown to the ground, sometimes involuntarily would would throw himself into a fire or to a lake or a river. And if it wasn't for a tired, anxious, sad dad going out there all the time to get him, he would have been dead. The disciples of Jesus even came and they prayed, but the situation seemed beyond redeemable. All the stories of the Old Testament where barren people were having kids or righteous fugitives learning that God's on their side, those were stories that would just actually pour salt into the wounds of a father who had to watch his son be destroyed like this. This kid was demon-possessed. He had no friends. Likely ostracized by other family members. Why are you even holding out for him, Dad? And sometimes the dad didn't even know why but even the disciples of Jesus couldn't do anything. Did the dad have the right faith? Did the dad believe in a redeemer who couldn't deliver? Was his faith too naive, too optimistic? And I have to imagine that after the latest attempt to have this foaming, rolling around mad kid healed for the umpteenth time and and failed, Jesus returned with Peter and James and John from a mountain. And the father comes up to Jesus If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can, echo Jesus, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Do you believe that the gospel Paul is preaching is still able to redeem? Do you believe that the gospel of grace is sufficient to atone for your sins? Do you believe it? Do we have reason to be optimistic? Do we have reason to believe that stories like Saul to Paul still happen? When Jesus saw that a crowd had come running, he rebuked the unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out and never enter him again. After shrieking and convulsing him violently, the spirit came out. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. May we, by God's grace, believe and ask God to help our unbelief. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Paul is contending for a gospel because he realizes its power. He realizes that it does redeem, that it changes lives because he knows his life was changed. He knows that beyond a shadow of a doubt, he was blind as far as you were concerned. He was zealous for all the wrong reasons. He was stubborn. He was ready to go basically, eventually murder more people and he thought he was doing it all in your name. So he knows how destructive and dangerous perverse gospels can be. And he writes from a place of deep gratitude in experiencing your redemption because he knows that this is the only gospel that has the power to save people. Help us to defend that gospel. Help us to preach that gospel. Help us to live out that gospel. Father, help us with our unbelief. We know that there have been many occasions severed relationships, people who are wayward, people who are on a path they shouldn't be on. And we pray and wonder, will they ever come home? Will they ever change? Will this illness ever be healed? Will this problem ever be repaired? Father, we know that you are full of compassion and that you still save, you still redeem. Help us with our unbelief. Help us to not stop praying. Help us to pray into our dying breath. Because we trust in you and we trust in your power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Come back tonight. Join us for a barbecue.